Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Center Right Podcast. Today's episode is the first installment in a four-part mini-series that I'm calling Reflections on the Year. Perhaps it will be annual occurrence, and perhaps, depending on the feedback I receive from you all, the podcast will be here to stay. In these four episodes, I have two simple goals. First, I want to reflect on the key events of the year. And second, I want to talk about the future and what it's ex- what our expectations are for it. My original plan was to release a solo podcast um, as the first installment where I would offer my own thoughts on reflections and projections. But after some thought, I decided to release first three conversations I had with people from my world, namely the academic world, the religious world, and the journalistic world. This week's episode is the, uh, I guess, covers the academic world. Um, Today on episode one, I have a very good friend of mine on the podcast, Rob Powers. Like me, Rob is a graduate student at the PhD program in LSU. We met in August 2019, and since then we've become quite close. We're always in conversation with each other on a variety of topics, anywhere from academics to history, current events, politics, or, I don't know, video games, and that sort of thing. Uh, You'll hear more about Rob's specific interests later on in the episode, but for now, just know that Rob is someone uh, who I deeply respect, and uh, I find his, um, his reasoning to be insightful and empathic. Um, one more thing before we begin the episode, if you'd like to support, I guess, the podcast, uh, you could subscribe to and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you uh, are listening. You can also really support me by subscribing to my Substack. I'll put that in the notes below the podcast. It's really simple. It's free. All you have to do is enter your email address and you will receive my newsletters directly into your inbox. There's no need for any sort of social media or anything like that. Um, And I think the most important thing you can do is if you do have social media, share my posts on them. Um, That really helps get the word out about what I'm writing um, and and just the, the blog itself. So without further ado, um, I bring you episode one of the Center Right podcast.
All right, so um, I'm here with one of my classmates, Robert Powers. How are you, Rob? I am fantastic. How are you, Ben? <laughs> I'm good. Um, so today is November 20th. Uh, I guess about two days ago, I had a thought about recording four to five podcasts with people that I know, um, maybe with some people who I don't know, who are, um, I guess, well-known journalists or thinkers, about um, reflections on the year as we head into the holidays and as we are in the midst of and at the tail end of uh, a really tumultuous election cycle. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's probably an understatement. Um, but Rob is uh, one of my closest friends here in Baton Rouge, and um, I really respect his opinion on a, a lot of different things, um, anywhere from history to philosophy to theology to current events and politics. Um, we certainly don't agree on everything. We agree on a lot of things, I'd say, sure, but sure. Uh, we don't agree on everything. Um, so I wanted to have a conversation with Rob and, and others about what they thought about the year and, you know, what they see for 2021, you know, maybe the next four years, uh, as we <laughs> are already looking forward to the next election cycle, for sure. um, and looking forward to, in a negative sense, not as a, uh, not as a happy thing either, but um, just wanted to, to get some thoughts from other people on what's going on. So even if no one listens to this, this will be an interesting thing to reflect on in maybe five or 10 or 20 years. This is a historical artifact. That's right. That's right. This is a historical artifact um, just for my own notification. So um, I'll open it up, Rob, with a kind of a big question okay. um, and... I want you to more or less lead the conversation. I have a uh, idea of where I want this to go, but um, I just want to get your thoughts on on what 2020 has been like for us. Um, and I'll also add one more thing for more context. Rob and I are both uh, in Louisiana State University's history PhD program. Um, we spend the majority of our time <laughs> in a, a wide variety of books, um, whether they be history or philosophy or literature, um, we spend a lot of our time talking about and working with ideas and writing about them. Um, so I guess before we really get into thinking about the year and thinking about the future, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your interests are, and kind of where your, um, I guess your worldview comes from and your standpoint? Oh, yeah. Whoa, that is a huge question. Um, well, yeah, so I'm from Southwest Virginia, not West Virginia, Virginia, the Southwest corner. Um, and I was raised in a super, super fundamentalist tradition and um, only recently actually left the church. I think I went there till I was a sophomore in college, I want to say. Um, not the church as in like the Christian church, but that specific church. Um, 
So yeah, um, I I have a sort of a lingering interest in theology because I think you know, theologians of of all times, specifically the modern period, have gotten at questions that continue to interest me and that continue to shape our lives. So I study um, liberal theology in Germany in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, let's see what else. I work with Dr. Marchand, who also does. Um, she does a lot of theology, though she's also interested in like Orientalism um, or like German perceptions of the East and and classics, which she's kind of turned me on to. So I'm super interested in the Romans and Greeks, even if I'm still pretty ignorant, as professors remind me every time I try to talk about them intelligently. Um, yeah, um, I guess I should say that the, the area I come from is super rural. So there are like 400 people in my hometown. Um, and if my accent hasn't told you already, I'm definitely a hillbilly. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, is there anything else I'm missing before I talk about what kind of year this has been? Uh, I'm trying to think. Any um, other key details? I think that covers a lot of it. Um, I guess maybe just one question I have that I think we'll probably get to at the end. Um, which, why history and, and why are you interested in it? Um, well, I think that I, I'm interested in the historical context and that I care about the forces that have shaped the world we live in. Um, but I also, I think I'm like you and that I really care about the ideas too, specifically the theological ideas. Um, and, you know, so I grew up in this background where like every Sunday was an argument against science and, um, and then as I sort of started working on my bachelor's thesis, which was on Darwinism and, um, and German theology, I sort of discovered that all of these German theologians had already reconciled the two and had not indeed sacrificed their faith while being um, very supportive of science. And so that sort of started me on this, this trail. Though I've always been interested in history just because, again, the sort of presentist um, notion that the forces that exist now um, have existed in some form or another and I'm interested in how all this came to be. Um, for a while I thought I wanted to do medieval history. I don't know if I've told you that. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, yeah, I came into undergrad wanting to do medieval history and I took an early uh, a class in early modern Europe and and sort of liked that okay. And then the next semester I just sort of fell into a modern European history class on accident and ended up just loving it and totally changing my uh, my um, trajectory. I, the reason I, specifically the lecture I remember where I knew I wanted to do modern history was when uh, Dr. Clark, my undergraduate advisor, was talking about reactions to uh, World War I um, culturally, philosophically, and theologically. And I was just like, oh wow, this is just super gripping uh, seeing people deal with catastrophe and, and different ways that people made sense of catastrophe. And honestly, that's still kind of what I do. Um, I work on the Weimar Republic, who for people who aren't that into German history, it's the period sort of in between the end of World War One and Hitler's seizure of power in 1933. And so I'm still interested in the way that theologians and classicists and all sorts of other people made sense of getting pounded in World War One, <laughs> and, and then not only losing a war, but also having terrible economic um, sanctions put on your country. and, and what does that mean for the study of the humanities, right? Because if people aren't getting enough bread and meat, you know, what does that mean for people who want to read books? Um, the answer is not good things. If you think it's hard to get published these days, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's 
a sort of roundabout answer, roundabout way of telling no, you about how I got interested in what I like. That 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 totally works. Um, so let's kind of shift to what the year has been like for us uh, as graduate students. Now, um, I've been at Rob's house here for a good almost four hours now, so we've been talking plenty already, but I fully acknowledge that although Rob and I are pretty poor, we don't make much money, um, we are in an ivory tower. We are very sheltered from um, most, I would say, working class and average everyday concerns um, about the economy, um, even about COVID. We, we, we're pretty isolated from a lot of that. But um, we still have had a particular experience um, this year. So um, I guess for me, this year kind of began like any other year is uh, the second semester of our graduate school right, experience. Right. We were heading into uh, you know, a class where we were supposed to write our first thesis chapter. Um, we both well, we both went to an academic conference together. It was shaping up to be a good year, and then everything just kind of uh, screeched to a halt. Right. So um, that's kind of like my preamble to what 2020 was. But what about for you? Like, w what were you thinking about going into 2020? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I guess the first question that was really on my mind is, uh, were, did, the did the 20s technically start in 2020 or in 2021? <laughs> Because that, that was the problems that we had to worry about at the start of this year. Um, yeah, that changed. <laughs> I was, yeah, I think uh, in, a, in a lot of ways it, it had been a good year. I mean, I wasn't in a great place with my mental health because um, I um, had a fiancé back home um, who is now my wife and who is now going, yeah, <laughs> that's the one victory this year. Um, I got somebody to marry me. Um, she is now a student at LSU's vet school so that ended up working out but I was really missing her really missing my mom um, she and I have a really close relationship and I had sort of toughed it out um, being about 12 hours away from home the first semester then I went home for Christmas and got super spoiled um, so I'll admit that um, and I hate to admit this but I greeted it with a little bit of relief when we uh, we got sent home because mm -hmm. You know, all of our graduate seminars, it was clear, I think, that they were going to be able to be held on Zoom just fine. I did not realize how serious um, COVID was going to be. I thought it would be like the swine flu or less dangerous. Um, and I had the swine flu. That's interesting historical fact. <laughs> um, it was terrible. Like, just about as miserable as I've ever been. Could not breathe. Um, but I thought it would be, you know, I think we had 12,000 people die from the swine flu. And I, you know... Obviously, that's still a tragedy, but um, I did not expect that we would be talking about over 200,000 people being dead at the end of this year. So at first, I greeted it with almost a sense of relief because I was in such a, a bad place with my mental health. Um, honestly, I had not even thought about the election, um, which I, gu I guess goes to show like, in what an ivory tower we live because, you know, I guess people who, on either side of the aisle, who have, you know, real everyday stakes think of, think about those things a lot more and we talk about them in abstract senses in graduate seminars but um, yeah I didn't even think about what a tumultuous year it was going to be once November 
November came around. So, yeah, I, I went home and uh, it did not take long for the sense of relief to wear off. Because um, my mom, uh, who works at a, a rural health clinic in, in Southwest Virginia, she quickly got um, got told that she was going to have to work from home. She uh, does a thing called um, pharmacy outreach. So basically she orders medicine for people who are really poor. Um, so it wasn't necessary necessarily for her to be at at or on the job every day um, in-house because she can order all the medicine over the phone. So she got sent home. And so I was, it was me there and, and my mom and a lot of times my fiance. Um, and we were all trying to do our work. And tensions ran pretty high. Um, quarantine is not easy. Um, even if you're a social hermit like me. Um, and we had a few fights. And then like the death toll just kept rising and kept rising. And I didn't know how, how long it took to come out with a vaccine. It looked, it's looked like we're going to get one soon. So thank God for that. But I was thinking, you know, and this just goes to show how ignorant I was. I was thinking, you know, like one or two months, oh, we'll have a vaccine. Well, that's not how science works. <laughs> um, that's not how vaccine trials work. So I think, uh, again, you know, there was the initial sense of relief because of my own, like, unique predicament in that I, I was super excited just to have to do grad school from home in the comfort of familiarity. But that quickly wore away as I saw how serious it was becoming. And I saw, like, the very real emotional and psychological toll it could take on people um, even who weren't um, getting the virus because as I've just been telling Ben the the virus really hasn't ticked up in my area until this month so it it had I mean you know you heard of it here and there um, but it never it wasn't really that bad until this month but you know the effects of it were sort of already being felt in terms of emotional and psychological and you know being around your family members for long stretches of time without any break without any um going to work or anything that can yeah i don't know what the position that the people who are listening to this will be in but that can take a toll sure um so it sounds like you know obviously enough i guess we both had similar experiences going into the year um i kind of had a different reaction to the virus i was really concerned about it um, going in and I have since kind of moved towards a position of we should kind of go toward herd immunity which we can talk about if you want but You're very stoic I'm yes uh, yeah, so it takes person. it usually takes me a little while to kind of adjust but I usually arrive at some point of stoicism uh, within um, a pretty short amount of time um, but COVID and, and, and COVID in the spring is not the only thing that's happened this year so as the school year ended, um, we, you know, obviously we're still dealing with um, issues with the coronavirus. You know, President Trump was having his uh, daily press briefings and all that kind of stuff. Prefaced by Cuomo's press briefing. <laughs> right. Which he's going to win an Emmy, I think, but we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on that. Um but as as school ended and and the summer rolled around, we had a, another significant national trauma or national event happen, which was uh, George Floyd's death and the uh, protests and riots that came out of that. So um, 
what were your kind of initial reactions to those to, to those things? Right. Hmm. That's a that's a good question. I think my initial um, reaction was like everybody else discussed, um, and I was really shocked at how bipartisan the response initially was, um, because people, conservative, liberal, I mean, were I think equally disgusted by it, and then. You know, riots broke out, and I think that there was a good reason for protests to break out. Um, for sure, I mean, you know, there there was there are clear systematic structural issues there, but um, I think I was like many of my countrymen, though that sounds a little like too early twentieth century, but you know <laughs> what I mean. I was like many of my countrymen, disappointed in the fact that like innocent businesses got punished, um, and like the aftermath of that. Um, so, I mean, I think they're quite right um, to express the, what I think is, a, is an issue that's sort of been boiling and boiling and boiling and finally came to a fever pitch, um, not only because of issues of racial justice in America, but also because I think, you know, COVID has taken a real psychological toll on people, and I think that was just another thing um, that, that, you know, it was an issue that was already sort of, like I said, it was, it was heated and had been boiling up for a while, and I think that was uh, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and I think, you know, I still don't know that I... It's, it's hard to understand what it was like on the ground for the protesters and for the people who were um, victims of looting or of uh, destruction of property, or people who were victims of violence. Um, and I think I'm still trying to grasp that. Um, but yeah... I think I think the initial thing the that I was really shocked by was how again America this is hard to believe but America really came together there for a little while and in disgust mm-hmm. right because yeah. everybody was disgusted by it um, it quickly became politicized and there were riots that clearly went too far and, and hurt innocent people but um, I guess if there's like a positive thing to take from it it's that most of America I think initially really really came together um and my uh, my wife's family they're pretty conservative and we don't live in a very diverse area but they were all very disgusted about it now they were equally disgusted at what happened with the riots but um i think for a moment there there was a real time of solidarity mm-hmm. i don't know if you experienced it the same way initially yeah no i i i think i think this is something that really is is not articulated well um Especially in like the more mainstream media, which I, I hate that term because it's so cliche. But regardless, um, but no, I, I I definitely think that that was the case. I I really don't know of anyone that I talked to that thought that Derek Chauvin's actions were justifiable. Um, maybe some people wanted more context, but. Right, right. Um, you know, on its face, that seemed pretty, pretty disgusting. But you know, we we had we had the George Floyd death. Um, I would say murder, even though it hasn't really been court yet. So right. I want to be careful throwing that word around. But um, we quickly transitioned, as you mentioned, to having this issue politicized, and I guess more specifically in the culture, we had. Black Lives Matter really come up. Now, I've written extensively about Black Lives Matter, and I think it has... Their intellectual connections, I think, are 
in the least naive, um, if not dangerous. But I'm curious to hear what you think about kind of what Black Lives Matter is and kind of the the cultural response to that, not only in the media, but also like on social media. You know, right. we had like the whole Blackout Tuesday thing. We had this, right. um, I'd say probably two to three weeks where, I mean, it was just rammed down our throats every single day on social media. Um, what, what did you think about that? <clears throat> yeah, that was another, another tough one. Um, I will say, you know, as a rallying cry, I don't think any realistic person who has paid attention at all for like the past, we'll say for the first three decades of the 21st century, um, could disagree with like the sentiment that Black Lives Matter. Right? I think it's it's something that Ben has talked about a lot. It's a problem of lack of nuance in politics, right? Because we have a, a Black Lives Matter sort of as a slogan, and then we have like the sort of more higher up organizational ideological function which is I think pretty explicitly Marxist right and I think it's clear that those two things are um, not the same but they sort of get elided and thrown in and and misconstrued and I think that you know on the media on the right and the left there's no real differentiation I think politicians on the right and left have failed to differentiate um, between Black Lives Matter as a slogan and emphasizing issues of racial justice in America and then, um, on the other hand, endorsing Marxism, which I think, with the exception of, like, the radical, radical ends of the political spectrum is not something that most Americans are committed to. I mean, I think um, most people, even conservatives, are sympathetic to the slogan, right, and to the rallying cry and to uh, the frustration of the African-American community with um, police brutality. But um, I think you have to separate that from, I think, the sort of explicit Marxism of organizational, like, Black Lives Matter. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, and it could be that that just hasn't been, you know, again, it, there's just no nuance, right? I mean, right. they're all just, it's all thrown into one hat. Right. It's hard to, and this is a theme that could have, like, five podcasts, but it's just, it's hard to know the truth. Right. Um, and it's hard to find the truth. It's hard to... To know who's telling you the truth, I think there's an issue of like. Uh, <laughs> since I, I um, I'll quote former President Obama, he said there's an issue of truth decay in America, and I think he probably meant that um, not in a deeply partisan sense. Um, and there's an issue of trust. You know, who can we trust? And I think that this raises those questions, right? Because you know, people who are intellectually curious, who who are really engaged and and want the truth, are looking for those answers. And it's just so, it's also convoluted. It's hard to, it's hard to separate it. Right. But Well, I also would say too, just to, to kind of contextualize this more, the U.S. has a very historically strong distaste for the M word or the S word, i.e. Marxism or socialism. You know, we, we, sure. we had this nonviolent, more or less war um, for decades in the latter half of the 20th century um, against, it was really ideological war right, for sure. uh, against, the, you know, obviously Russia and the U.S. And, you know, we have, we had things go on at home here in the U.S. with McCarthyism and kind of this Red Scare stuff. Right. And most Americans have a, uh, a, visceral, a visceral reaction to 
the, the ideas of Marxism and socialism. So I think that kind of coupling with the explicitly Marxist things that were on Black Lives Matter website right, right. and and defund the police's website. Right, right. I mean, I think that our history of having this strong reaction to Marxism really affected our ability to, as a country, articulate our true emotional uh, kind of thoughts on what Black Lives Matter means because it got caught up in this contentious rhetoric about Marxism and old scars that we carry. Right. No, I think you're totally right about that. Yeah, and I, I think that that's... It's really unfortunate, and, you know, you alluded to it, but Mar Black Lives Matter is, is a slogan. It's meant to be divisive. It's just like pro-life and pro-choice. Those are both slogans. Right. Slogans <laughs> don't lend themselves the nuance, Ex by the way. Exactly. I mean, right. if, if, you're, if you're pro... Who isn't pro-life? Who doesn't want life... Who doesn't want to see life win? Right. And, and, and life blossom. And, and at home right. and who doesn't want people to have individual choices I mean that's that's like the basis of liberalism small right. L by the way um, so it's I, I, I agree with you it, it, we had a we're still having particularly in the summer we had this heated cultural moment where we just completely lost our minds and had this total inability to have nuance about a very sensitive and and deep issue For within sure. our country, but um, did you have anything else you want to add on that? Well, yeah, I, I and I may have said this already, but I think in a lot of ways we were talking across each other oh, this yeah. summer because I think you know one group of people because I think most people who participated in the Black Lives Matter protests would not identify as Marxist. I think that you know there are a few here and there, and that's sort of like you know the what is it the um a little lump spoils the whole the whole loaf a little um, bit of uh leaven yeah spoils the leaven, the, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the leaven spoils the whole loaf um so i think and then it, but you know you also get these and we're not talking about people on facebook who share like white lives matter because it's clear <laughs> they're not thinking about this and, and at the intellectual level that would be expected of somebody who's engaged in politics so right. facebook aside right. um I think that, you know, people talk across each other. You know, I think in, in, on one side, it's clear, like, you know, more conservative people, of course most conservatives think black lives matter. Um, and they take issue with the Marxism. And then, you know, uh, left-leaning liberal people are going to say, you know, well, can't, will you not agree that black lives matter? And of, of course they agree that black lives matter. Um, but, and then again, on the left, they're not understanding necessarily the, the sort of visceral reaction to Marxism. So I think it's a, a fundamental misunderstanding. And a lot of it is, a, is our own fault as, as the sort of constituents of democracy because we, expect, we don't expect nuance from our politicians and we don't demand it. Um, so they know, well, conservatives and Republicans, Democrats both know that they have a particular audience that they're, that they're catering to. And we've come to demand that from them. So, I mean, if, if we want to start to look for the problems with the lack of nuance, I mean, it ultimately begins with us because we are the people who demand this sort of behavior. Um, but I think that, you know, there could have been a nice discussion about it and, you know, nuance and separation, but I don't know if, if we 
as a as a voter base, and I mean that in terms of America, not liberal or conservative, are really ready for the sort of actual nuanced discussion that we need to have to um, work our way through this racial reckoning and to move forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, okay, so at this point, we're in the summer. We're dealing with this um, tendentious racial discourse. Um, but by the time August rolls around, the election starts to heat up. For sure. So um, the you know the news cycle is beginning to be more geared towards Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Right. Um, you have the COVID numbers on one hand, exactly, and the poll numbers on the other, exactly. And those are the two things that you see constantly: exactly. COVID deaths, COVID infections, and then poll numbers and and sort of just little sound bites from the election. Exactly. Really so, interesting time to be alive. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, I, I thought of November 3rd as the perfect culmination of everything 2020, although it seems like now uh, on November 20th that we're not quite done yet right. um, with the craziness. But um, do you mind telling anyone listening you know what what your thoughts were going into the election um and kind of how you were framing your perspective on on voting and who to vote for because um i can cut this out if you want but um you voted for trump donald trump in 2016 right um you voted for joe biden in 2020 right i voted for donald trump in 2016 um which was really i would say before my political my, my real political interest right. but in 2020 i felt confident in my vote not because i thought he was a good candidate but because of everything else going on right. um but so you know we disagree we disagreed on that front so how did you frame your um your perspective on voting and, and why did you come to the conclusion that you were going to vote for joe biden okay yeah that's a, a super good question i you i think already know my answer um but um for one, I think I was like a lot of people um, disillusioned with the so-called establishment in 2016. And I, I mean, I'd grown up conservative and think I probably am, even though I tend to characterize myself as a left-leaning person now, I think I'm probably by nature conservative. You can just like ask my wife how I feel about like budgeting. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, uh, I think where I started to have my doubts about Trump when, um, when it came to the appointment of his cabinet, his cabinet, um, because a lot of his cabinet picks disappointed me. I think you know there were some competent picks, but they were mostly not. They were mostly not competent. <laughs> it was mostly people who were sort of from his um, circle of friends, um, and I think you know obviously there's a swamp in Washington D.C. But I think with Trump we um, we lost. Well, we didn't lose because the swamp in D.C. I think we should be clear. Like 85% of bureaucracy in D.C. stays the same no matter who the president is. So there's only like 15% that's ever up for debate um, or up for grabs. And so I think, you know, we substituted one kind of swamp for another, right? I mean, you can pick like the D.C. like establishment. I've been a politician my whole life and never really done anything else, never had any practical experience and never gone through like a lot of the stuff like people like us are going through and doing like the sort of like 
grading a hundred papers at a time and doing sort of like the the drudge work. Um, but yeah, so I sort of had already had my doubts about him. I um, I didn't know before the primary. Um, I knew I probably was not going to vote for Trump again because he had disappointed me and I felt very let down by him. Um, I didn't know if I was going to vote third party or if I was going to vote um, uh, Democrat and a lot of that depended on probably who would have won the nomination. Um, but to make a long story short, because I realize I've rambled sort of, um, I think one of my main issues is climate change. Um, and I think that we have like two options. We can either sort of work our way down off the cliff or we can just keep the pedal to the metal the way we're going and just face plant off the cliff. And I feel like if we start taking some steps now, we can make things easier for later generations. Though I'm, I'm fully aware of the argument that innovation will sort of take care of itself and we have entrepreneurs out there who are working on this stuff. Um, and I think that's true to an extent because supply and demand reign even when politicians say that they don't and say that they'll make a difference. But I do think that politicians can make some difference and that they can make it easier on green technologies to succeed or make it easier on traditional energy forms to succeed. Um, so that was my main thing. Um, my other thing is, is I think I was like a lot of Americans tired of the, the sort of Trumpian rhetoric, if that's even an adjective you can use. And I think Joe Biden seemed like a really safe choice. Um, I had also, um, I think this is probably an important thing to mention, I had also been like concerned about Biden at first because I thought that he had a mental illness, but then I did a little more research and found out that he doesn't have a mental illness. Um, he has a speech impediment. And so that explained for me a lot of the reservations I had about him. Um, and I was actually in a, in a way proud that that he was like sort of pushing through that because we emphasize so much like any little mistake you make. And and that goes for conservatives and, and Democrats. I'm definitely not saying that it's just Democrats who are attacked for the way they talk um, because uh, Republicans definitely get it too. So that was sort of my, my thought process. Um, you know, at the time, having grown up in a super conservative community, like, I hated the Obama years just because that was, like, what everybody around me was saying. Um, but after having gone through the sort of rhetoric of the Trump administration, I really respected the, um, the sort of measured, um, sort of more easygoing demeanor of, of Obama. And I, I'll, I'll say I still don't think that we're far enough away from from Obama to really be able to gauge his presidency, um, but I missed that sort of that sort of comfort. And I'll be honest, um, I tend not to get worked up over politics because I think that major change comes at the cultural level in terms of religion, in terms of everyday discourse and everyday conversation. But when uh, when Biden gave a speech, like the day the day after or two days after the election, and he was just like telling everybody to stay calm and let the process play out, I got a little teary because I felt like it had been so long since I saw somebody who de-escalated rather than escalated. And I'm fully aware that Joe Biden is not a perfect candidate, um, as I think he probably is. <laughs> um, but, um, Hopefully. Uh, um, yeah, so that was my um, perspective sort of um, moving into it. So it sounds like you... Um, in 2020, you were more or less a two-issue voter. You were, right. um, prim I mean, primarily concerned about the climate right. and, and dealing with that. And second, 
you were worried about um, Trump's rhetoric and mm-hmm. kind of where he where his administration was leading the country politically speaking um, right. because you're of the view that politics really cannot influence culture I think it can but I, just, I think it's yeah. just if we're, we're talking in terms of hierarchy I think that culture determines politics not vice versa sure. and though I think um, again that politicians can serve as accelerants to bad trends or good trends um, and I think a lot of times they set examples though Again, like we, we talk about Trump's rhetoric, but you know, it's not like Trump existed in a vacuum. Like, sure, we as a country made him, sure, right? All of oh, us. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, I definitely think that, um, you know, politicians can make a difference, but I ultimately think that that it starts at the um, cultural level. At the cultural yeah. level, yeah, yeah I, I would pretty much agree with that too. Um, okay, so. Now, at this point in the year, we're in maybe September, October. This semester has started back up again. Um, We are doing more or less online school. Um, You know, I go up to school like two days a week compared to five days a week, and you're probably a a little bit less than that. Once every two or three weeks to pick up books. It's basically out of necessity you go. Um, And I, I, more or less the same for me. Um, so what has this semester been like, uh, taking classes for you and what has it been like being a teaching assistant with the grading? Right. That's, that's a good distinction to make (laughs) because for me, well, I, I think as I alluded to earlier, I have reading like, or doing this Greek literature course, it's been in in English translation. I don't just leave anybody (laughs) making think that I can read ancient Greek. I cannot. Um, but uh, th- I've kind of been struggling for air in that class because I just feel so out of my like depth, but it has had nothing to do with Zoom. I mean, we've had good regular discussions like we would have had e- even if we'd been in person. Um, the reading seminar that we've had, I think, has been good. We have a professor who has tried to um, be very understanding and tried to make it as easy on us as possible while also making it a, an ultimately rewarding experience. And she gave us a lot of latitude and, and sort of choosing what we wanted to read um, every other week and sort of exploring our interests. So I thought that was great. I think we've had really productive discussions on Zoom. I think we get as much done in <clears throat> an hour and 45 minutes or two hours as we do in the three-hour standard classes, honestly. Um, and then the other class has been thesis research. So, um, you know, that's been what it's been. It's been a little difficult um, to get books because a lot of the books I need are are coming from Germany or are coming from really high-powered research libraries and a lot of those are closed or not doing what they normally do and you know our people are trying their best at LSU and we have a very good interlibrary loan department I should say I should they deserve total credit because they are normally fantastic um, it's but it has been hard to get stuff so I found myself having to do a lot more of which I don't like to do of just using uh, what people, what other people have quoted and trusting that they have copied the quote well, which again, I don't like to do, but classicists do it all the time because sometimes the quoted work is all that we have. We don't have the original work. So I tend to think it's not that histor- historically unrigorous. Um, yeah, now that it's been pretty, pretty good for me because I've had um, 
for all the reasons I've mentioned and because I've had my wife here and she's been super supportive emotionally and kind of going through the same things. Um, though I think she's probably had a harder semester than, than I do because of the, just the challenging nature than I have because of the challenging nature of her material. But um, not saying ours isn't challenging, but I just have major respect for what my wife can do. Um, now for the undergrads um, who are just sort of, they're not, necessarily being asked to do what we do which is read books and analyze the books and synthesize information based on what we already know and kind of take various arguments into into account they're being asked to sort of master the material for the first time this way and it has been terrible for them um, even I think motivated students are struggling um, professors who are great lecturers are struggling to reach the the audience the same way that they do when they can sort of let their personal charm and charisma work because um, sometimes that same charm and charisma just doesn't work virtually and electronically the same way it does in person um you don't know the situations that people are going through at home um you know we're in a economic crisis right now that has been brought on by uh, the public health crisis so you just don't know what people are going through and I think it's hard for anybody to stay motivated without going and having to see the person uh, that to, to whom they're accountable. So you know, I think all those factors have have led to the to the fact that it's it's been really hard. Um, I think the the drop rates are much higher. The the fail rates are much higher. The plagiarism rates are much higher. Um, and kids are not. It's not that students are getting any dumber or, or less intelligent I think it really is um, it's just an awful time uh, I, I agree I, I I think we we students who are in our second year of graduate school have really lucked out um, because I really feel for the first year graduate students who are coming in not being able to talk to their professors in person most of the time um, who are are trying to deal with this enormous learning curve that is the first semester, not even the first year, but the first semester right, of graduate right. school. And uh, I, you know, personally, I'm thankful I'm in my second year, but I That's also it. I also feel feel for these first year students because I think they're dealing with a lot. But also on the undergraduate level, um, I've heard. A few things from the students in my class along the lines of it's been hard to stay motivated a lot of feelings of loneliness um, of, of isolation and I think that you're right that it's reflected in their work and that's not a knock on them it's just <laughs> the situation that we're in um, but okay so so we've kind of dealt with like the the school part of the second half of the year so let's talk about briefly the election and what you saw with that N not the aftermath but the election right. itself because I want to get to that in a second right, but right. I think that's a different issue right so what did you think about the election Ooh, I thought that was a miserable week <laughs> it was a miserable <laughs> election week, but I won't, I won't talk too much about the aftermath um just in far as far as uh, takeaways go um I think the election I two main things stick out to me. One, that we had an incredibly high turnout election, which is really good for democracy. Uh, then the second point is is that 
that high turnout also revealed that we are incredibly divided. Um, as the count stands right now, it's looking like Biden has about 80 million votes and Trump has about 74 million. And that easily, I mean, I think, you know, don't quote me on this, but I think we've beaten turnout by like 20 million the, in 2016. Um, and, you know, the margin's a little higher for the Democratic candidate this time, but it still shows an America that's fundamentally divided. Um, and so I think, you know, it's great that people are, are getting out and um, expressing their voice through, um, through the vote, you know, as our tool in democracy. Um, but it also shows how deeply, deeply divided we are. And, um, and I think, you know, Joe Biden's going to be inaugurated on January 20th, and I do not envy him. Um, he has got a, um, a real, he's got a super high mountain in front of him. And um, it's going to be tough. I mean, we're, like I said, we're in the midst of an economic crisis and uh, a public health crisis. And it, it didn't matter who, uh, who was going to win this election. The next, uh, I don't know what the next four years look like, but I can, I think, comfortably say that the next half year, the next year is not going to be easy. No, and, and we're deeply, deeply divided. And I don't think that's just going to go away overnight either. Um, so, yeah, I guess those are my two main takeaways. Turnout and polarization. Hmm. I think those are key, especially the polarization point. Um, okay, so the for, for me, uh, as someone who voted for Trump, I <clears throat> felt pretty good uh, within the first 24 hours of Election Day about Trump winning, even though, just to emphasize, I wasn't thrilled about it. Um, but obviously, as time went on, um, Biden's votes continued to, to climb um, as those mail-in ballots were counted. And based on all the evidence that has been presented, because the Trump administration has thus far failed to provide anything substantial or convincing, um, He's he's going. Uh, Joe Biden's going to be inaugurated on January twentieth. Um, so, I guess a question I have is, from someone who voted for Biden, what was your reaction to Trump's allegations of voter fraud, widespread voter fraud, and you know, what do you think about what that says about not really Trump, but where we are as a country right because i think we all know where who trump is so right, i don't really right. think that take that requires much explanation right well i think you know again i i hate to, to quote obama because it makes me sound like you know he's just like a hero of mine and i do respect him but i wouldn't say he's like my intellectual hero but he said that he you know was he said that he's not surprised at how trump's acting he's surprised at how the republicans in the senate and house of representatives are acting um they did well, and, um, and it's looking like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia. Republicans have a good but not absolute chance of holding the Senate. Um, they uh, shrank the majority, the Democratic majority in the House. Um, they lost um, the, uh, the presidency, which I think is more a, a referendum on Trump than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I think, you know, he's... Like he said, he's not surprised by how Trump has acted, but how those people have acted. Um, especially, um, well, I guess I, you know, I frame that as, as if they shouldn't be acting the way they are because they, they were successful. 
But I think the reason they're behaving the way they are is because that Trump's brand of conservatism has kind of worked for them. It worked for them this election. It did not work for them in 2018, but it worked for them in 2020. And I think um, what you see is um, several Republicans, though some have come out and spoken against Trump, and because what he's doing is anti-democratic. If he had evidence, now that would be totally different because presidential candidates, be they Republicans or Democrats, have absolutely every right to um, challenge results or ask for recounts based on substantial evidence. I know by that, to question that principle would be anti-democratic. But the fact that they're filing lawsuits without evidence is, <laughs> usually as I tell them, the, uh, the evidence comes before the lawsuit. But um, I think what we're seeing is people are afraid to distance themselves from Trump because sort of this like Trumpian conservatism has become a pretty successful brand. Um, and, you know, like I said, some people have spoken out against that, but I think a lot of people who are less popular in their own right are sort of worried to get away from his coattails. And I think another another part of this, I think Ben, ben mentioned when we started the podcast that people are already talking about 2024. Well, on the Democratic side, we have Michelle Obama and Andrew Cuomo leading the polls, and Michelle Obama has, you know, we can't predict the future, but she did not even want Barack Obama to run for the presidency, so I highly doubt she's going to run for the presidency. Um, on the Republican side, well, um, it's looking like the front runner <laughs> for the Republican nomination in 2024 is uh, Donald Trump. So, you know, and again, that could change. You know, four years from now, we could look back at this and say, like, Ben and Rob, you're nuts. He didn't have a chance in 2024, or he could win the nomination again in 2024, and we can be eerily accurate. But anyway, I think, um, as Mitt Romney said in an, interview with, in an interview with Chuck Todd, Trump is still the 900-pound gorilla in the Republican Party. And um, that's what worries me, rhetorically speaking, um, because I think a lot of these uh, Republicans are principled conservatives and are do not normally practice the sort of rhetoric that, that Trump does. But they have seen the sort of that it strikes in a polarized country and I think they're afraid to distance themselves from that and that worries me because it's clear that you know these court challenges are going to fail because they've had weeks now to bring about evidence and I think there's been 19 or 20 cases just thrown out already um, and you know in places where they're within the margin of recount they'll they'll recount the votes um, they just finished the recount in Georgia it the margin changed a little bit but Biden ultimately won you know and and you know recounts are fine um, there, human error is a part of any election. There's always a little bit of error. Um, and they typically, I think, I saw today, they typically change around 433 votes. So out of millions, you know, it's not, we don't love the fact that there's any error, but it's, you know, given that we're human, um, what is it, to, what, what is the, the quote to, um, like, to forgive is divine, but to err is um, human? Sounds like right, Alexander right. Pope or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, um, I'm more worried by the lingering presence of the rhetoric because, you know, I think a healthy democracy um, exists when we have um, good policy debates between Democrats and Republicans and other parties. You know, I'm not saying that we should just just vie for the two-party system, you know, hardcore. Um, and I even look back at the, the Romney-Obama debates or the McCain-Obama debates and they had real respect for each other and they disagreed about policy. 
And in those debates, they talked about policy. And sometimes they used words and talked about things that I wasn't familiar with because they were so deep in policy, and that's a good thing. Um, that is a good thing. And that's where I want us to get back to. Um, and that's what worries me about the sort of lingering presence of the, the sort of, of, of Trump's rhetoric and his power in the, the Republican Party. Well, I, your concerns are things that I agree with. I, my, thing, my issue with Trump has always been his rhetoric. Um, even whenever I voted for him in 2016, I recognized that um, the, the way that he presents himself is not presidential. And I know that many people will say that, you know, who cares? He's, you know, the, a man of the people, et cetera. But, um, you know, I'm of the view that we should demand more from our politicians and not less and not dilute the, the pool of politicians that we do have. And, and um, we, sh- we should be demanding more because we have a lot of really brilliant people living here. Yeah, for sure. But, okay, so we're, we're mini tangent over. Uh, so we're pretty much caught up to the present. Right. So right now we're still dealing with these lawsuits from Trump. In all likelihood, they're going to be thrown out. Joe Biden will be inaugurated January 20th. Um, We are dealing with rising COVID-19 numbers, um, which concern me, but I also am sticking to my (laughs) herd immunity guns. Um, That may be an okay gun, given that we're going to have a vaccine. We hope. Sure. The evidence is pointing in the direction that we're going to sure. have a vaccine soon. What concerns so. me, I guess, is the hospitalizations. Right, um, for sure. It's not the numbers, per se, that never really bothered me. It was it's the hospitalizations that worries me. Um, but we are nearing not just the holidays, but finally it seems the end of a um, hellacious year. So, you know, looking forward to 2021... Um, or 2024 or the next 10 years um, what are where do you see things moving um, what are your fears and what are your hopes oh wow um, well my hopes are that we get a vaccine as soon as possible that people take it I mean all the you know I know there's been some fear because of um, how quickly it has been developed but the experts, um, and I do trust the experts. I don't don't think they're perfect, but I trust them. They most of them have come out and said that these trials have been rigorous, and that there's no reason to just to distrust the quality of the vaccine. Now, you know, if it was like a a Russian vaccine, and our only guarantor was was Putin, I would be worried. But um, I think we're a little ahead of that. Um, so my hope is that we get a vaccine and we get this under control. Um, I imagine that. Um, I don't know if it's looking like Trump has pretty much like given up um, on president stuff <laughs> yeah. for the time being, but I hope that w- whether in the end of his administration or in the beginning of the Biden administration that we, we get a stimulus bill passed. Um, we need one badly because um, our economy is like spiraling downward quickly. Um, so I hope that happens. I hope that... Um, we uh, and so, so I guess that's my immediate 
my immediate thing. Um, I also want to get my thesis done on time. And, <laughs> Same and here. I'm hoping that Dr. Marchand, my advisor, doesn't doesn't wreck my what I've written so far <laughs> too badly over Christmas break because it's my jolly time and I don't want to have it ruined by hurtful comment. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so yeah, th- those are my hopes, and I want to. I want my wife to graduate with her um, vet, uh, veterinary degree, and I want to get my PhD and remain somewhat sane and not get too many um, gray hairs. I'm already kind of looking like Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> with my, my yeah, I did notice. Streak. I did notice a few little gray hairs. Yeah, in there, I have so. a gray streak going on now. Um, my hopes for the next ten years. I hope that um, this is a big one, kind of random one. I hope we make it to Mars in the next oh, ten years. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, successfully and without anybody dying, um, I hope that we get a handle on climate change insofar as we have control of it. You know, a lot of it we don't because as, as Ben and I were actually looking up earlier, you know, our population is dwarfed by the populations of India and China, but we also, um, contribute about three times, uh, the percent we, I think we're about like three to five, I don't know, three to five percent of the world's population, but we contribute about 15 percent of the pollution. So um, I would be happy if we brought that down <laughs> more to scale and, and took uh, took steps to make green energy more affordable um, and to help the economy on the way, you know, because um, I think that people talk about like the climate or the economy. I think if we, we do it right and we put America's best minds to it, we're absolutely capable of making it climate and economy. Um, I'm not running for office. I'm too young. So <laughs> I was not paid to say that. Um, um, yeah. My expectation. Um, I expect that we'll get a stimulus package. I expect that we'll get a vaccine. Now, I'm not sure about the gray hair and about the graduating sanely. We'll keep our fingers crossed on that one. Mars, you know, it depends on how much we um, invest in NASA and how much um, private entrepreneurs are willing to uh pay it forward because you know we have elon musk i'm not really familiar with any others though who are sort of willing to to fork out large amounts of money for stuff as abstract as going to mars so i'll say i'm cautiously hopeful on our space future space exploration um i don't think that you know i think that climate change will remain a contentious issue for a little while though i think it's becoming increasingly clear that um we may not agree on the answers or the solutions, but that climate change is definitely influencing our lives as human beings across the globe negatively. Um, so I think that we'll, it'll be healthier politically when we disagree about solutions rather than about like rather than trying to like refute like 97, 98% of scientists. Um, so I'll say I'm cautiously hopeful because I think you know it's been a really rough year. And I think we don't have hope. We don't have anything. Um, and so I think we have to, we have to stay, stay optimistic and know that there, there, are, there are going to be setbacks. There are going to be disappointments. Um, but that, you know, we have come through much worse moments than this in our history. Um, and, yeah, we can. And I, I guess I should also say as a, as a more general point, I hope that that we come together more as Americans and we do begin seeing each other not as opponent or not as enemies, but as opponents um, or ideal people with ideological disagreements who 
are perfectly civil otherwise and who can be great friends otherwise because as we've talked about before we have to keep talking because um, literally democracy dies when we stop talking um, that's what it's all about so I'm cautious you know I wouldn't say that I think that all the, all the good things that I that I hope were going to happen but I'm hopeful well if anything I have faith in Elon Musk the man with the plan i think if if anyone can do some cool stuff uh in the next 10 years it's elon musk for sure so um one last question that i want to ask you um and then we'll we'll cut this thing off is um kind of just to bring it full circle uh and tie in what we're seeing now with um what yours and, and my interests is which is history so um as you just said you know we have as a country been through worse than what we're going through now i mean i think that um you know the 1918 pandemic is far worse than what we're dealing with now Um, especially because of given how advanced we are medically yes as opposed to how not advanced they were medically. yes i mean i think i think you know in 100 years we look at the death tolls i mean the 19 the, the the coronavirus will dwarf the numbers from the, the 1918 right, flu. Right. Um, we've also, you know, we've dealt with two world wars in the last hundred years, right. more or less in the last hundred years. Right. And, um, you know, so there's there's reasons for hope. There's reasons to believe that the sky isn't falling all the time, right. um, which I think is something that we are all guilty of because we're we have such a presentist perspective Um, we we all suffer from recency bias Um, but so how does history either give you hope or influence your perspective on on what we've gone through in the last 11 months well I think I'll say first that I mean I think the more fair position would be you know we can say like you know maybe a piece or two of the sky is falling without all of it falling. sure yeah um and I think you're you're quite right that you know the sky is not literally falling. We're gonna we're gonna make it through this. Um, though it, I mean it's been tough. I think for just about anybody. Um, I think the only people who have you know really profited from this are like maybe like Amazon because people are buying more stuff online now and mask makers. They are making a killing. Um, but other than that, I mean, you know, that's not to say that those people haven't suffered or lost anything um, on a more individual level. But so I guess history, it, it worries me and it um, gives me hope because I think history shows that um, Americans and, and, and as well as other nationalities can come through um, controversy, can come through um, a little bit of a little bit of trouble, a little bit of tribulation, and be all the stronger for it. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I think back to, you know, and all kinds of people have made all kinds of arguments about why we're not Weimar Germany, um, at, and we're not, um, why democracy is not in danger. And, you know, far be it for me to, to contradict those people, especially with my limited knowledge. But, you know, democracies are not something that we should take for granted. So, and I'm not, you know, again, I'm not saying that Donald Trump's going to destroy our democracy because if, if we allow Donald Trump to destroy our democracy, there was way more wrong with our democracy uh, to begin with. But I think that 
one issue we have is that we do tend to assume that these things are just a given and take them for granted. And we don't value our institutions as such. And um, that worries me because these institutions don't just, um, and you know, and some institutions are, are poisonous and, and bad, but I don't think that about the majority of our institutions. I think, you know, even if the people in those institutions are not the people we would have, I think the institutions themselves um, have a certain uh, capacity for reform and that you can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, but yeah, so I think what worries me when I look back at history is the fact that, you know, republics, republics have fallen, democracies have failed, um, and there's nothing written in stone or, or written um, in the sky that, that we as Americans are absolutely exempt from that. So um, I don't think that this is the end of democracy, and I don't think the sky is falling, but I think that uh, if history teaches, teaches us anything, it's that you cannot take what you have for granted, and you have to actively work to better what you have, um, and to um, to talk about it, to um, to support it when it needs to be supported, and to reform it when it needs to be um, reformed. But you have to understand that that doesn't just happen because it's Tuesday. It happens when good thinking, hardworking people think hard and work hard. Um, and I think that's the scary thing and the, the hope instilling thing. Hmm. Well, I hope that your hopes are correct <laughs> and sad. your fears are incorrect. Um, for anyone listening, um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Rob. Um, we've had many conversations like this yes, in the last year and a half. I've enjoyed them immensely. Um, and I hope that these podcasts, I don't really know what to call them. I'm not sure if this is going to turn into anything permanent <laughs> or not, but um, I hope that these at least will um, help you to reflect on the year. And if you happen to disagree with Rob's perspectives or my perspectives, that um, this hour or so um, conversation we have will open your eyes to the vast world of um, opinions that exist out there. And even if you don't change your mind, that um, that you recognize that, as Rob pointed out, we have a we have a lot more in common with each other than um, than we than what is portrayed in in the world, and especially on the internet. Word. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, I hope that this episode will help set the tone for your holidays and uh, for the beginning of year 2021 i hope it goes much better than uh 2020 did amen